Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, presented by Ken Impress. This week's episode is the opening chapters of It's Good to Be a Man, a handbook for godly masculinity. Listen to the full audiobook available now exclusively on Canon Plus. Introduction Entering the world of men is supposed to be a process that slowly unfolds with the help of others. Through the oversight of a father and the encouragement of male peers, a boy over years builds the confidence and mastery of manhood. But that has all been burned down. Households are broken. Fathers are absent, often not by their own choice. Male spaces for mutual encouragement are disallowed or opened to girls. Burgeoning manly desires are subdued or redirected by Adderall, video games, and pornography. Feminism reigns in the church and the broader culture. Little boys grow up thinking there is something wrong with being masculine. Christian men are told the same thing. Inevitably, many of us, even in adulthood, are lagging far behind where we naturally ought to be. The process of attaining manhood has been sabotaged. This book is our contribution to the work of repair. In writing it, we did not want to create a timeless work, but a timely one. Our goal is to help modern Christian men understand what God made them for and how to start doing it intentionally. We want to help you play your part in rebuilding what has been raised. This is not a book about getting a girl. It's not a book about being a husband. It's not a book about being a father. It is a book about being a man. All of those other things are important to manhood, but if you don't understand what men are made for and how God intends you to become great at being a man, none of them will matter. God made men for dominion. That means He made you for dominion. We want you to understand what that means and how to start taking your place in faith, serving and fighting for God's kingdom. The world wants you distracted by grand ideas for top-down change, but God accomplishes His will mostly through works that have small, pitiful-seeming, ineffectual-looking beginnings. Consider how laughable Peter, James, and John, uneducated peasants, must have looked to the assembled cultural powers of first-century Israel and Rome. Then consider Gamaliel's wise insight about them. Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men, and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Acts 5.35-39 The walls and gates of society are built by the men who fight with God. Let us start with that work. Chapter 1. The War Between Patriarchies Patriarchy is inevitable. God has built it into the fabric of the cosmos. It is part of the divine created order. You could as soon smash it as you could smash gravity. It is natural and irrevocable. Cicero was right. Custom will never conquer nature, for it is always invincible. Men were made to rule. They always have, and they always will. Nothing can change that. Nothing will. It is not a question of whether men will be ruling, 
but which ones and how? This is what patriarchy is, the natural rulership of men. The term comes from Greek and means simply father rule. History begins with a man, Adam, commissioned to be fruitful and to multiply and to rule over the earth in God's stead. That man failed to uphold the name of his father. How he ruled quickly turned bad, but that he ruled could not be changed. By nature, fathers rule, and he was the father of the human race. This had dire consequences for all those under his fatherhood. The Westminster Shorter Catechism explains, The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind, descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him, and fell with him, in his first transgression. Though the woman ate the forbidden fruit before the man, we did not fall in Mother Eve. We fell in Father Adam. The failure of the first patriarch plunged mankind into sin and misery. But God, being rich in mercy, made a promise of redemption, a promise handed down through the fathers of his people, just as the curse was. He himself told Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Exodus 3.6. Consequently, Scripture traces the promises given to the fathers until their fulfillment in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Romans 15.8. It is through the work of the Son of Man that man is reconciled to the Father, and we can all become sons of God, fitted to rule on his behalf as Adam should have, and as Jesus now does, fitted to be patriarchs. Redemptive history is therefore a patriarchal history. This is why the societal structures in Scripture, too, are patriarchal, because they all are derived from the original, prototypical household. Before there were nations, there was the original ruling family, headed by Adam. Nations are headed by men because they are made up of households that are headed by men. In the same way, before there were churches, there was the original worshiping family, headed by Adam. Churches are headed by men because they are made up of households that are headed by men. Indeed, a man may not rule in the church unless he can manage his own household well, for how else can he be competent for the greater task of managing the household of faith? 1 Timothy 3.4 All leadership, whether in the Old or New Testament, whether civil or domestic or ecclesiastical, is exclusively male. Mary Daly, a feminist scholar, once quipped, The Bible is hopelessly patriarchal. She was right. But it is not just the Bible. The world itself, being created by the same author, is also hopelessly patriarchal. In no society anywhere or at any time have these realities been absent. In every society that has ever existed, one finds patriarchy. Males fill the overwhelming percentage of upper hierarchical positions and all other hierarchies. Males attain the high-status roles, whatever these may be in any given society, and male dominance. Both males and females feel that dominance in male-female encounters and relationships resides in the male, and society and authority systems reflect this. So patriarchy is the natural and inevitable state of the world. But just because something is natural doesn't mean that it will always be virtuous. Good things can be perverted by sin, whereas unnatural things are always evil because they are contrary to God's design. Natural things, though created good, can nonetheless be turned to unnatural ends. Homosexual desires are always wrong. Heterosexual desires were designed to be good, yet every man knows how his flesh turns those desires towards that which is against God's law. For a man to be attracted to a woman is natural, 
for a man to lust after her is sin. Natural things must therefore be ordered toward the ends God intended for them. They must be conformed to His law. So it is with patriarchy. Male rule is natural, and so it is inevitable. But when it is not governed by God's law, it will be wicked. Because it is natural, it cannot be destroyed, but it can be twisted. This gives birth to an evil patriarchy, the rulership of wicked fathers who do not represent the fatherhood of God. Although our culture treats all patriarchy as evil, God's father rule is good. Evil patriarchy is that which does not reflect God's loving authority. Evil patriarchy hates those under it. It is not so much anti-women as it is anti-everything, and especially anti-any threat to its own power. In fact, you can understand redemptive history through the lens of these warring patriarchies, the power of good patriarchs conflicting with the power of evil ones. For example, it was inevitable that Egypt would be ruled by a patriarch, but it was not inevitable that Pharaoh would be good. The king who ruled in the days of Joseph gave honor to Israel and his sons, but the king who arose in the days of Moses did no such thing. He saw the sons of Israel as a threat to his reign, and he determined to do something about it. At first he tried hard labor, but when this didn't crush their spirits and prevent them from being fruitful and multiplying, he commanded the Hebrew midwives. When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Exodus 1.16 Pharaoh knew that the young men of Israel, unlike the women, were a threat to his reign. Why? Because all men are potential patriarchs. Men are designed for conquest and rule, and their combined strength could be sufficient to break the chain of even a mighty dynasty like Egypt. So Pharaoh tried to use the Hebrew women against the Hebrew men. But in one of the great ironic reversals of redemptive history, Shipra and Pua, the godly midwives, did not comply with the schemes of a corrupt ruler as Eve had done. Rather than being deceived into unwittingly abetting him, they resisted Pharaoh by deceiving him. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing, and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Exodus 1, 17-21 Thus Pharaoh was forced to find another way to murder the future patriarchs of Israel. And he commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Verse 22 Young men are always the target of an evil patriarchy. Because God has made them to rule, they are a threat to existing rule. Therefore, evil patriarchs always try to do one of three things. 1. Harness them. Why waste all that masculine energy after all if it can be turned toward the ends of the evil patriarch? This is the first impulse of any patriarch, since he is a leader of men, regardless of how wicked or righteous he is. Most nations have done this to some degree, through enculturation and education, especially patriotism, military service, and formal schooling. We see Nebuchadnezzar doing this with the Israelite nobleman, Daniel 1. 
Our own recent history is replete with examples from legitimate patriotism that honors the Fifth Commandment to vile programs that pervert it, like Hitler Youth or the Islamic radicalization of disaffected men in America. Pharaoh, too, tried to harness the sons of Israel. We can detect the strong cultural influence of the Egyptians in the idolatry of the Exodus generation. 2. Pacify them. If the energy of men cannot be harnessed by an evil patriarch, it often can be sapped by channeling it into pursuits that leave them impotent to rebel. This can be done by putting them to work as slaves, as Pharaoh did, but often it is by offering them bread and circuses, fruitless pursuits to escape into, rather than doing the hard work of fighting. Sex is an obvious choice here, as in the case of the Philistines trying to pacify Samson through Delilah, Judges 16.5. In our day, the technique has been perfected with porn and, to a lesser extent, video games. Men who are hooked up like junkies to the dopamine drip of virtual fornication and fake dominion are worthless for the task of being fruitful in real life and imposing genuine order on their worlds. Marx, following his father, the original liar, famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Not so. This entire book is rooted in the reality that religion, true religion, is the one thing that sets the masses free from the actual opiates of fake dominion and fake fruitfulness. When this happens, there is only one option left for evil patriarchs. 3. Destroy them. Young men who cannot be harnessed or pacified must be crushed. They are too dangerous to an evil patriarchy to be allowed to live. This is why the most godless regimes are always the most murderous. Communism is well known for its ruthless hunt for dissidents in its own ranks, typically men. Pharaoh was determined to kill every baby boy among the Hebrews, even though it would decimate his labor force. Herod, too, sought to have the young Jesus killed by slaughtering the innocent, Matthew 2. Throughout all of history, we see manifestations of this war between the patriarchies. Men will always rule, but which men? In an evil patriarchy, many men fail to overcome the harnessing, pacifying, and destructive forces arrayed against them. Many men fail to become patriarchs, and many more fail to become good patriarchs, ruling well over the domains God has given them. For many men, their authority is either taken away by those with power over them or it is twisted. Either way, whoever controls the men controls the culture. Sometimes the way this war is waged is overt, as in the case of Pharaoh, but sometimes it is more subtle. Covert war is best exemplified by Absalom, son of David, who had his eye on his father's throne. Absalom knew the importance of men in achieving his goal, so he hatched a plot. Men would visit Jerusalem every day to bring legal cases requiring the king's judgment. Some didn't feel heard. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Either way, Absalom saw an opportunity. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, and when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. 
so Absalom stole away the hearts of men in Israel. 2 Samuel 15, 2-6 Absalom was able to steal the kingdom from David by stealing the hearts of the men. He invested time in them, took an interest in them, sided with them, and even defended them. Every age has its pharaohs and its Absaloms, but Absaloms are especially prevalent in times of disruption and disorder. They wait for a power vacuum created by weak and ineffectual patriarchs. Such is our time. The Absaloms are many. And while that is cause for concern, God is pleased to also raise up bold and godly patriarchs. Here is one last patriarch to keep in mind, Nehemiah. Centuries after Absalom, that great city where he sat in the gates was reduced to smoldering rubble. Its walls were broken down by Nebuchadnezzar and its gates were burned with fire. When Nehemiah saw it, he wept. He wept because he knew that a city is protected by its walls and guided by the men who sit in its gates. Jerusalem had neither. She had been reduced to a chaotic ash heap. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, so that we will no longer be a reproach. Nehemiah 2.17. We find ourselves in a similar situation. Western society is burning. The structures that led to her prosperity have been broken down. You see this in many realms, but none so clearly as the state of our men. Like the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the days of Nehemiah, our men are in great distress and reproach. Chapter 1, verse 3. We are living in a world of fatherless males who don't know how to rebuild the walls of society. They have become clueless bastards. They know how to build, explore, and conquer in video games. They must turn to YouTube to learn how to jumpstart a car, tie a half Windsor knot, and do a push-up. Social skills are even harder for them. They scour the internet to learn how to stand up for themselves, make friends, and talk to women. The knowledge that is normally transmitted from father to son has been lost. They have to rediscover it for themselves. As if being functional bastards weren't bad enough, they are being born into a radically unstable cultural situation. Technological and environmental shifts have resulted in men having such low testosterone levels that their grip strength is weaker than that of women from a generation ago. The ubiquity of porn has led to erectile dysfunction in men not even out of their 20s. Social media and dating apps have made the relational marketplace so extraordinarily competitive that some men just give up and either abandon the idea of sex or turn to virtual reality and even robots. Masculinity is shamed. Strong men are vilified as toxic. Those who speak out have their houses destroyed. Fathers are portrayed in mass media as unnecessary buffoons, little better than one of the kids. Anyone esteeming motherhood as foundational to femininity is canceled. Domestic violence is regarded as an exclusively male sin. No-fault divorce, welfare, and wickedly prejudicial custody laws incentivize women to leave their husbands and take everything they have. And so they do, initiating nearly 80% of all divorces. Male suicide rates are heading for the skies. No one cares. All of this would have seemed absurd just 50 years ago. Yet, here we are. Our culture has become like Jerusalem, burning, and so have our men. More correctly, our men have become like Jerusalem, burning, and so has our culture. 
The men of the West have become ruined cities, and our real cities, states, and nations have followed. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Proverbs 25:28. This is not primarily our fault. It is the fault of our fathers, and their fathers, and their fathers, too. It is the fault of the evil patriarchs who have harnessed, pacified, and even destroyed them. But it is ours to fix. We are the ones now living and burning Jerusalem, and we are the ones who must rebuild the walls. We are the ones who must overcome the evil patriarchs of our day, whether in the deep state or the media-industrial complex. We are the ones who must refuse to be turned aside to their will by deception and gaslighting, refuse to be numbered by their offers of cheap pleasure, and refuse to be cowed by their intimidation and oppression. Jerusalem is indeed burning. Many men in the church know it, and they are tired of living in the ash heap. The conditioning of our culture cannot conquer their masculine nature. They want to fight, but they crave guidance. When the Babylonians burned Jerusalem, God raised up Nehemiah to rebuild it. But where are the Nehemiahs of our day? Where are the pastors who build with a trowel in one hand and fight with a sword in the other? Where are the Christian leaders who can rally men with words like this and mean it? When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Nehemiah 4.14 The church is not known for such men, and so in the absence of godly Nehemiahs, young men are turning to Absaloms. Someone must help them repair what is broken and rebuild what has been lost. The clueless bastards are groping for fathers, and so they find Jordan Peterson, Rolo Tomasi, Joe Rogan, pickup artists, and even secular men's rights advocates. They discover that these men listen, these men understand, these men advocate for them and defend them, these men are trying to fight and build, they have a hammer in one hand and a firearm in the other. And so these men steal their hearts. The church is in danger of losing another generation of men. We are in danger of prolonging our time in exile. We need Nehemiahs who will lead men in the work of rebuilding but they are few. Many leaders in the church won't even acknowledge that Jerusalem is burning at all, and the ones that do can't honestly explain why. They are blind guides, prescribing solutions that not only fail to address the core problem, but create more of that problem. This has created a void. Our book is a modest contribution to filling this void with something other than unbiblical judgments from secular Absaloms. We want to rebuild the walls and reset the gates of society. This must start from within. It must start in our own lives and then move out to reform our households, and then the household of faith. We will therefore focus on the goodness of God's creation order, how it got all messed up, and how you as an individual man can work toward restoration. We want to restore masculine piety, the duties we have to God and neighbor as men. But as man goes, so goes his household. As a household goes, so goes the church. And as the church goes, so goes society. Chapter 2 Masculinity is Very Good Genesis contains the blueprint for recovering manhood. It contains the key to explaining our present cultural moment. 
It contains the information you need to understand women. It contains the clues necessary to interpret God's direction for your life. It contains the landmarks you need to find your way to mature manhood. Everything is in Genesis. To explain this, we must first ask a question. Why did God make man? We have found that most Christians today have no answer to this question. They may well have asked why God made them, but they have seldom considered this question in light of God's purpose for mankind as a whole. If pushed, they may gesture vaguely toward love as God's motive. If they are better taught, they will say for his own glory. But if you press them further, they will either run out of steam or run into error. Part of the reason for this is that most Christians today spend very little time in Genesis. When they are not actively embarrassed by it, they are indifferent to it. Their time is spent in the New Testament. After all, isn't that God's final revelation? Yes, but Genesis is the seed of all Scripture. Everything grows from there, including the New Testament. Without understanding Genesis, you cannot adequately understand the rest of God's Word, nor are you well equipped to understand His creation. Genesis is the kernel from which everything grows, which is to say that everything is in Genesis. Just as the seeds of Genesis take time to reach fruition in history, so they take time to reach fruition in your heart. Once you have received the implanted word, James 1.21, you must tend and cultivate it before it will grow, before you can discern its full form or taste its fruit. So why did God make man? Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1, 26-28 You are probably so familiar with this that you didn't even bother to read it. But do you know it? Here is one way to find out. Try summarizing it. What would that look like? Maybe something like this. God said, Let us make man as our stand-in, to rule, 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 rule over everything. So God made man as his stand-in, male and female, and he told them, flourish and rule, rule, rule over everything. Notice how rulership, fruitfulness, and the image of God are thoroughly and repetitively linked. This near-laborious repetition is not because Moses needed to fill in space. It is to alert us that what is being said is really important and to make us consider the significance of it. The reason that God creates man on the earth, according to Genesis, is for productive, representative rulership. This is what it means to exercise dominion, to fruitfully order the world in God's stead. To fallen ears, this will sound impossible, but God made man to establish his own presence and rule in the physical realm, to bring heaven to earth through his living image. Look. Having gone through the process of creating and ordering the God-sized structures of the world over the first six days, Yahweh stops and rests on the seventh. He does not order it down to the nth degree. He does not manicure every tree and shrub. He does not dam any rivers. He builds no houses. He leaves the world untamed and unrestrained, 
and creates just a single garden sanctuary. Then he fashions one last kind of creature, a creature suitable to continue his work, suitable to function as his creative viceroy, suitable to expand his rule across the globe. As God worked in the first week, so Adam will now take over from him in the second. The Net Bible's translators note, God's purpose in giving humankind His image is that they might rule the created order on behalf of the heavenly king and his royal court. So the divine image, however it is defined, gives humankind the capacity and or authority to rule over creation. Notice also the language God uses in connection with this task, fill the earth and subdue it. We see in Genesis, in the days prior, that the world has been filled already with other life but here we are alerted that it is not yet subdued and that to subdue it, mankind will have to continue this process of filling, started by God. They will have to fill it with themselves so that God's ordering presence can be extended into every forest, desert, plain, and tundra. Evangelical Christianity speaks of this commission in terms of stewardship. This is basically true. But the term stewardship mutes the far more forceful terms that God actually uses. Rule the earth, or have dominion, means to reign with kingly power. It refers not just to authority, but authority backed up by might. For example, one from Jacob shall have dominion, and will destroy the remnant from the city. Numbers 24.19, emphasis added here and below. May he also rule from sea to sea. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Psalm 72, 8-9 Subdue it means to vanquish or even forcefully put down. Elsewhere in Scripture, it is used in reference to conquering and even enslavement. Now you are proposing to subjugate for yourselves the people of Judah and Jerusalem for male and female slaves. 2 Chronicles 28.10, C.F. Nehemiah 5.5 If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel. Numbers 32.20-22, C.F. Joshua 18.1 We should not conclude from this that God created us to have a combative relationship with the world. There is no hostility between Adam and creation. He was not to violently oppress it. This much is obvious from the fact that all the creation is declared very good, Genesis 1.31, and Adam was created to carry on God's very good work. God's rule is always wise, loving, and righteous, but Genesis clearly does imply that the world was needful of taming, subjugating, conquering. The general meaning of the verb appears to be to bring under one's control for one's advantage. In Genesis 1.28, one might paraphrase it as follows. Harness its potential and use its resources for your benefit. Again, this is dominion, fruitfully ordering the world in God's stead. While the Garden in Eden was a sanctuary, Genesis does not suggest that the rest of creation was similar. The Garden was bounded, the rest of the world was not gentle or soft, but wild and dangerous. Adam was made to bring it into submission, to order and shape it. Perhaps the garden was a kind of model for Adam of how things should look once he was finished with this commission. It is important that Adam's task here is dominion, not just stewardship, because it calibrates our understanding of two critical things, Adam's nature and God's. 
What Adam was created to do is what we are created to do, and the God who created him is the God who calls us. If Adam was made in God's image, and that image is worked out in terms of dominion, as it unquestionably is in Genesis 1, then how God exercises dominion should tell us a lot about how he expects us to image him. We have seen that this involves bringing order by forming and filling in Genesis, but we also learn a great deal about God's dominion throughout Scripture. This is a point lost in modern Christianity, where the focus is almost exclusively on the model of Jesus and the Gospels. But while that model is of course perfect, it is not complete. It is a model of God, as the second Adam, humbling himself to correct the mistakes of the first. It is not yet a model of him ruling over the world as Adam should have. Jesus did not take up the rule of Adam until after his resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven. Ephesians 1, 20-22 To see how God exercises dominion, therefore, we need to look to the rest of Scripture. While there are many examples of dominion, the archetype which Scripture itself emphasizes is that of an ideal apex ruler, a sort of aspirational model for what man at his greatest could be. This is the model that God gives Israel as he rescues them from bondage in Egypt to inaugurate them as a nation to bear his name. It is the model of the warrior king. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name, as Moses chants in Exodus 15.3. This model is taken up again in Revelation, describing the living Christ who reigns over the world from heaven. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19, 11-16 What man can read this and not feel a thrill of awe, or perhaps, for the unbelieving, a chill of fear? Yet many men today shrink from taking up the sword of the Spirit to imitate Christ and exercise dominion over the portion of the world he has delegated to their authority. Men today, trained by our culture, reserve sharp cuts exclusively for those who call us to imitate the whole Christ, warrior king as much as foot-washing servant. They are no longer capable of distinguishing between kings and tyrants, or warriors and bandits. Contrary to such men, Scripture shows us that God glories in exercising His might and subduing His enemies by force, and any man who removes this from his view of dominion is double-minded. Men today desperately need to hear this message. There is no hint in the Bible that your aggressive instincts are a result of the fall. You are not, in other words, a defective woman. Your desire to conquer and to subdue, to hew down and to build up, to form and to shape, has nothing to do with the curse. It is man's natural, pre-fall created purpose. You yearn to bend the world to your will because Adam was created to bend the world to his will. Where things go wrong is not with our natural yearnings, but with our wills themselves. Adam was made to exercise his will on behalf of God. 
This is what a son does, as we will see later on. And as we will also see, the image of God is directly connected to sonship. But Adam refused, and so we refuse. We are the true sons of Father Adam, doing what he did and following in his ways. This is why we can no longer bring heaven to earth, and God had to send his own son as a new Adam to take over that process. Nonetheless, our masculine nature is how we are designed to image God as men. This nature must be redeemed, not rejected. Sin does not eliminate our natural inclinations. It corrupts them. In the same way, grace does not replace our natural inclinations. It restores them. When Scripture describes redeemed men as new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17, CF Revelation 21.5, it does not mean we have been changed into something entirely different, but rather into something renewed. As Pastor Bill Smith puts it, the new creation is about restoring the old and taking it to its fullest glory, not growing out of it. Thus, there is nothing shameful about your masculine nature, about desiring to strive, to overcome, to harness. On the contrary, masculine nature is glorious because it images the God of glory. It is what we were created to be and do. Even now, as you seek to honor God, you are a replica made to resemble Him. How much more when you see Him face to face? So far, we have seen that God made men to rule fruitfully in God's stead, bringing His presence to earth as His living image. But ruling is more than the work of subduing. It also includes the work of filling, as God explicitly tells Adam. It includes this work not merely because Adam needs manpower for subduing, but because Adam is continuing the work of God himself. Man cannot bring something from nothing, as God does, but he can take the raw materials that God has made and create from them something new. A fine example of this is the one God gave Adam, a garden. Exercising dominion in a garden involves more than merely cutting back existing plants, pulling out the ones you don't want, and dividing the ones you do into neat areas. It also includes seed work, husbanding the plants to be more productive or tasty or beautiful, cultivating the soil to produce what it otherwise would not, hybridizing breeds to produce new flowers or fruit, plus the work of building all manner of paraphernalia to support the garden itself, which must be produced from the wood of trees, using tools that must in turn be crafted from ore in the ground. As for plants, so for mankind. The work of dominion requires planting, cultivating, and raising godly seed. Dominion, to image God, must be fruitful. Thus, God made mankind to be fruitful and gave the man a biological drive equal to the importance of the task. Sex, in other words, is the engine of dominion. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen to the full audiobook available now on Canon Plus. Just go to mycanonplus.com and start listening today.